0: I've been reading a lot more about the deflation scare, a lot of articles, again, trying to make the case that deflation is such a dangerous uh, economic condition that we must resist at all costs. One such article in Bloomberg, this one is by David Goodman, uh, currency wars evolve with goal of avoiding deflation. And this is now... Guy is writing about how the currency wars have now changed and where it's not really about growth, right? And trying to steal growth by weakening your currency, which, of course, didn't really work anyway. It's now about stealing inflation. The article points out that the reason that people or nations rather want to weaken their currency is to export their deflation. They're trying to push their deflation on their trading partners so that they can import inflation. And so the inflation is seen as a goal in and of itself, right? That it's deflation that's bad and inflation is good. Not we need inflation to get growth. We just need inflation because we need it, because inflation is good. And we got to get rid of deflation because deflation is bad. And again, of course, you know, when you've got all these governments all around the world that so desperately need inflation, right, not because their economies need it, but because they need it politically, because they need cover uh, to inflate away their debts where they don't have the, you know, the integrity, the courage to do it honestly. So they need to lay a foundation for inflation. They must first get the public to accept it as benevolent. And they're certainly getting a lot of support. In the mainstream media, in fact, there is a article that came out also in Bloomberg. This is this is more recent. I think this just came out. Uh, this one is from October twenty sixth. Actually, the other one was from a few days earlier. The other article was from the twenty second, and this article is from Rich Miller and Simon Kennedy, right? title is U.S. gains from good deflation as Europe faces the bad and the ugly. So now they're trying to kind of soften the message a little bit because they're trying to acknowledge that maybe some deflation is good. And, you know, why are they even bending the narrative a little bit? And the reason is because you've got these declining gasoline prices in the United States. You have oil prices again, which move below $80 a barrel. Uh, briefly on the week. They never really closed below 80, but we did trade below there a couple of times. Uh, but also, lower oil prices um, are translating into lower gasoline prices. And isn't this right? This is bad, right? Because falling prices are bad. But of course, everybody wants to talk about why the U.S. economy is good. And, and so they, they need to downplay the supposed threat of deflation as a, Because of falling gas prices, because after all, isn't this bad news then? If deflation is bad, if falling prices are bad, then why aren't falling gasoline prices bad? So now they're basically coming up with an alternative. And now they're saying, well, not all deflation is bad. There's good deflation and there's bad deflation, right? And so here's the distinction that they make. They say that when prices are are falling because of an increase in supply, like in the United States where our, our, our oil shale revolution means that we're creating, we're producing more oil, right? And so if oil prices are going down because of an increase in supply, that is good deflation, right? But if prices are rising because of a reduction in demand, right, then that is bad deflation. And we have the former over here in America But Europe is suffering from the latter. Now, first of all, to see how ridiculous this this is, right? If prices are coming down, whether it's because of demand or supply, it's still a good thing that prices are coming down because prices need to react to supply and demand, right? We want the law of supply and demand to work, right? So if supply goes up, then we want price to come down. If demand goes down, we want price to come down. It's not bad. It's reality. You want a market price that clears. You don't want a shortage. You don't want a surplus. And so prices need to be determined by supply and demand. And that's always a good thing. If the government tries to prevent supply and demand from working, if the government tries to fix a price that is different from the market price, then that's always bad. Whether the price the government chooses is too high or too low, the outcome is always going to be bad. But think about it this way. If now the uh, opponents of uh, inflation or opponents of deflation and proponents of inflation, if those that are saying that deflation is so bad, right, because if prices fall, nobody will buy, if that is true, then why doesn't that apply to gasoline? If falling prices are bad, why are falling gas prices good? I mean, what difference does it make why they're falling? Whether it's because of supply or demand, if consumers are supposed to react to falling prices by not buying, why is that not the case with gasoline? In fact, it's actually the opposite, right? You'll hear reports when gasoline prices come down, people are more willing to buy SUVs that guzzle gas. And when prices are going up, they want economy cars. Why? Well, because when gas prices go down, they can buy more gasoline, right? You need more gasoline to run your SUV than your subcompact. And so what is it that causes American consumers to consume more gasoline? It is the falling price which is the opposite of what these guys are telling us is going to happen if we have deflation. They say if there's deflation, you'll spend less. But the reality is, if you have deflation, you'll spend more, right? So just the very fact that consumers respond the way they do to falling gas prices should disprove this notion that falling prices are bad because they'll cause people not to spend. But they're trying to carve out this distinction where there's no difference, right? To say, well, it's okay as long as price is going down because of an increase in supply. How does the consumer know why the price is going down? Do you think that the consumer even cares? Why the gas price is going down? The fact of the matter is it's down. And that's the same thing with any price. When you go to a store and you see a price, you don't know if the price is down because supply is up or demand is down. And you don't care. All you care about is your own demand for that particular product. What you know, Whether or not you want to buy it. Right? It doesn't matter what other people are doing. It's the price from your own perspective. So psychologically, the reaction is going to be the same because you don't know nor do you care why the price is going down. But I would agree that it's better in an economy if prices are going down because supply is going up, because now we have more stuff, we have more abundance, and so prices can come down. But that does not mean that if prices go down in response to soft demand, that falling prices are bad. Because think about this. If demand is soft, how do you strengthen it? You reduce price automatically. If price goes down, demand goes up. So if your demand is soft and then the price comes down, well, that will stimulate demand. If demand is weak and prices don't go down, then demand stays weak. If demand is weak and prices go up, then demand gets even weaker. Or you end up with a surplus of goods that are sitting on shelves that nobody will buy. How do you get rid of the surplus? You allow prices to come down to where things are affordable and then people will buy and then the market will clear. You see, I would acknowledge that if there is a weak economy, let's say in Europe, and the article here is talking about how the European economies are weak and therefore prices are falling and that's bad. Now, the fact that prices are falling is not bad. That's good. You can argue that the Weakening demand is bad, right? The fact that consumers can't afford to buy stuff, that's bad, right? So the fact that there is weak demand is bad. But the fact that prices are falling as a consequence of that weak demand is good. You see, what the article is, the point the article is trying to make is because they have bad deflation in Europe, they need to do something about it. They need to create inflation. They need to force prices to go up because that will help their economy. But it won't. You see, if prices are going down because the economy is bad, forcing prices up won't make the economy good because it's like trying to cure a disease by only trying to cover up the symptoms instead of going at the disease. The disease then is going to be soft demand. Well, why is demand soft? Well, because there's too much debt, because there's too much government because there's too much unemployment that is the result of too many regulations, right? So what needs to happen in order to stimulate demand is to reduce government, to reduce debt, to reduce regulations, to reduce all that spending so that you can unleash all that demand. The solution is not to create rising prices. That is not going to strengthen demand. That will retard weak demand. That will make weak demand even weaker. If people can't afford to buy things at the current price— And if you force the price up, then those things are even less affordable and the demand is even lower. Now, the only thing that the article does mention at any point along the way that makes any sense is when they start to talk about debt and how European nations have debt. Yes, they have debt. And yes, inflation will help wipe out that debt, but it will do it in an economic manner that is far more destructive than the alternative ways to get rid of debt, which is restructuring it, which is defaulting. That will be much uh, better economically than to create inflation, but to try to raise the false pretense that rising inflation is necessary for growth, that if you increase prices, you will increase demand, flies in the face of economics. There's a law. It's supply and demand. And the way that law works is that as price goes up, demand goes down, and that is always the case. And as price goes down, demand goes up. So you never stimulate demand by increasing price. You always stimulate it by reducing price. Now, you can also reduce price by increasing supply. But that doesn't mean the one is good and the other is bad. right? It is what it is. And trying to create inflation is not going to solve the problems in Europe. Hey, while I'm talking about these articles that I read, there's one more article I want to bring up. This one was in MarketWatch. And the title of the article is How QE Worked in the U.S. And Could It Work in Europe? And of course, it didn't work in the U.S., so it won't work in Europe, right? But the title's got it wrong. But the article was written by uh, Greg Robb, and he is interviewing an economics professor. This guy's name is Stephen Ciccietti. And he is an economics professor at Brandeis University, right? And so he's talking to this guy about how effective QE was. And of course, he thinks it worked fantastically in the United States. But the most interesting part about this article is when they start talking about the exit strategy and the Fed's balance sheet. And this guy, um, Conchetti, basically says that the Fed never has to shrink its balance sheet. But that's false, that its balance sheet is $4.5 and it could just stay there forever. See, because he, the problem he has to confront with is, well, how can the Fed unwind the balance sheet? And isn't that going to be disruptive? And his answer is, well, we never have to unwind it. That's a myth. But of course, the the Fed has never talked about that. They've always pretended that they were going to unwind it. They've, ever, they've always said they were going to shrink their balance sheet. They've never come out and said, hey, we're going to leave it at four and a half trillion forever. See, this guy seems to think they can do that and it's no problem. It would be a huge problem if that were the case. That's why the Fed can't admit it. The only reason this guy thinks QE works is because everybody thinks the Fed is going to shrink their balance sheet, even though they can't. See, he thinks it's perfectly okay because what would happen if the Fed never shrank its balance sheet or if the Fed told everybody that it was never going to shrink its balance sheet? Well, then the dollar would start to decline because the strength of the dollar has been a function of the perception that the Fed will shrink its balance sheet. And remember when Ben Bernanke said that he wasn't monetizing the debt, his rationale was, well, because we're going to sell all these bonds. We're not permanently financing these deficits. It's only temporary. Well, if the Fed acknowledged, like this guy Conchetti is saying, well, we're going to leave our balance sheet at $4.5 trillion forever, well, then that would be an admission that they did monetize the debt because they're going to own these bonds forever, And that is a very different animal. And so as the dollar starts to weaken and inflation expectations start to mount, because the reason inflation expectations are contained thus far, in large part is due to the belief, the false belief, that the Fed is going to unwind its balance sheet, because that's what it's always said it was going to do, that it was going to sell down all these bonds, that the expansion was only temporary. Well, if investors believe that it's not temporary it's permanent then inflation expectations will accelerate and at some point the fed is going to be forced to raise interest rates and it can't raise interest rates without shrinking its balance sheet because how is the fed going to mop up all that excess liquidity that's what they'd have to do to start to you know to take the inflation out of the system they have to go into the market and they have to start stop selling treasuries so for this guy to say They never have to sell their treasuries. It doesn't matter how big the Fed's balance sheet is. Shows how little he understands about economics or finance, which is why he's a professor of economics at at Brandeis. And so if the professor knows so little, uh, I can only imagine uh, how much less his students know when when they graduate. You know, also, when this guy talks about balance sheets and why they can get bigger He points to Switzerland as an example, because he says, look at how big the Swiss balance sheet is. And it's even bigger than ours as a percentage of its GNP, which is true. But the Swiss balance sheet is not because the Swiss government has been, I mean, the, the Bank of Switzerland has been monetizing Swiss government debt. No, they've been buying up European debt. They're buying up euros. It's very different when your balance sheet consists of external liabilities. Right. So the balance sheet of the Swiss government, they've loaded up on obligations from Germany right, or France, other countries. But when the Federal Reserve is is, you know, expanding its balance sheet, it's all liabilities of the U.S. government. So it's very different when a central bank loans money to its own government versus when a central bank loans money to other governments, because that balance sheet really represents an asset. Yes, the Swiss can sell down their balance sheet, right? Because it doesn't affect uh, Swiss financing because they don't own any Swiss government bonds. All they own is European government bonds, obligations of other sovereign nations that do not include Switzerland. Now, they might take a hit when when they try to unwind that balance sheet. They may weaken the euro and strengthen the Swiss franc, but that's not going to be bad for Switzerland. That's going to be good for Switzerland. So it is an apples and oranges comparison to say, well, we can have a big balance sheet because look at the Swiss. We don't have European bonds in our balance sheet, right? We don't have Japanese bonds or Chinese bonds. It's all U.S. It's all the U.S. government that's being propped up by the Fed's balance sheet. So it's 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 a, a completely different situation. Yet this economic professor can't see the distinction. It's like the distinction between owning somebody else's IOU and owning your own, right? If I wrote myself a check for a million dollars, I wouldn't claim that I had a million dollar asset, right? But if I, if somebody else wrote me a check for a million dollars and I thought, and they were good for it, if Warren Buffett wrote me a check for a million dollars, then I would have an asset of a million dollars because I know Warren Buffett's check is going to clear but I'm not going to write myself a check and, and and treat it the same way as if Warren Buffett had written me a check. Yet that's how this guy is looking at the Fed versus looking at the Bank of Switzerland. Now, is the Bank of Switzerland making a mistake expanding its balance sheet so rapidly to buy up all these euros? Yeah, they are making a mistake. They would be better off not doing it. But the problems loom much larger larger for the United States if we were to try to unwind this massive balance sheet than in switzerland because when switzerland tries to unwind its balance sheet it's problems for europe not switzerland because europe has to make do the bonds because it's european bonds that the swiss are holding that's different in the united states if the fed wants to shrink its balance sheet it's the u.s government that's on the hook for it and the u.s government doesn't have the money the u.s government can't pay and what are those implications for american citizens See, the only reason that this guy can claim that QE has worked in the United States is because we haven't tried to end it yet. It's because we're still doing it and it hasn't even worked. It just looks like it worked. Just like any drug, it it, it makes you blind to the symptoms. We're getting sicker, but we don't know it because we feel so good because we've taken all the QE and to then now state that we don't need to exit. So you remember they said, look, we have an exit strategy. We can exit. But now they have to say, well, we don't actually have to exit. We never have to. Yes, we could if we wanted to, but we don't want to. right? That's what you've got to say. That's what you've got to say to maintain the pretense that you can exit is by not actually exiting. Because when you actually try to exit, right, then people realize that you can't because now all of a sudden uh, all, all the stuff starts to hit the fan. right? You start to feel all the pain that the QE was covering up. But again, I believe the Fed is going to come up with some kind of excuse. They're not going to say that, right? They're not going to say, oh, we tried to exit, Uh, we we took away the QE, and we relapsed, so we need more QE. They're going to have to blame the downturn on some extraordinary non-related event, coincidental, right? Just happened to happen. You know, we just happened to be unwinding the QE. We were getting ready to raise interest rates, and for some reason, Uh, some unrelated reason, totally out of left field, having nothing to do with this, we just happen to stumble into another problem. And because QE worked so good before, well, we're going to do it all over again because we know it works. Because the proof that it worked is how well it worked before. And everything would have been great if it wasn't for this new thing that happened that nobody could have forecast, which now we have to, you know, go back and do what we know worked. And again, he's saying it's going to work so well in Europe only because it worked well here. Well, it hasn't worked here. And I believe that at some point, the Europeans are going to realize what a failure QE has been in the United States. And the proof of its failure is that it can't end. Because if it was successful, we can end it. And the fact that we can't end it means it didn't work. But they'll never admit that it didn't work, so they'll just keep on doing it until they've done it enough that everybody figures out the bind that the Fed is in. And then when they figure it out, it will be expressed in the foreign exchange markets uh, and in the precious metals market.